Welcome to MoneyWeb at Midday, the actuality news show offering unique insights and in-depth analysis featuring South Africa's top business leaders, newsmakers and analysts for today's professionals. Your host, Jeremy Metz. Live every weekday at noon, then we are up as a podcast. This is MoneyWeb at Midday. I'm Jeremy Maggs. I've got 30 minutes of express news on developments here in South Africa and around the world, including interviews with business and political leaders, prominent newsmakers and top commentators. It's Friday, the 17th of November, coming up on the program, a new report into who really profits from South Africa's energy sector. The tragic death of a gift of the giver's aid worker in Gaza. The Health Funders Association says there is no immediate threat to medical scheme tax credits. And what now for the Proteas after that nail-biting World Cup semi-final? organization Open Secrets has launched its latest report entitled Who Has the Power? South Africa's Energy Profiteers. The report in its investigating South Africa's energy sector and climate crisis shines a light on the private sector interests and who seeks to profit from South Africa's current energy crisis, as well as the much-vaunted proposed energy transition. Let's lead the program with Michael Marchant, who is Head Investigation at Open Secrets. And first of all, Michael, can you elaborate on that term, energy profiteers? That's a great place to start, Jeremy. It's an energy profiteer from our perspective. They're the private actors, the, the corporations and the middlemen who are kind of lining up to make a mint out of South Africa's energy crisis. And I think that the way we view it is that those energy profiteers are kind of lining up across different sectors. They're in the coal sector, they're in oil and gas, but also increasingly, I think they're positioning themselves in the the renewable sector as well. So where do they sit in the supply chain and what do they do? So we're looking predominantly here at the kind of large scale, either suppliers to ESCOM in the case of coal, but also in the case of oil and gas and renewables, you're looking at a range of different actors. So predominantly looking at large multinationals who have lined up and and gained access to exploration rights, particularly increasingly production rights off the coast of South Africa. And in the case of renewables, largely private companies, often those who are headquartered uh, overseas that are pitching and often benefiting from the Renewable Energy Independent Powers Procurement Program, the REI P. Explain to me why it's important to identify them. So I think it's important to identify them because South Africa faces this multifaceted crisis. Everyone obviously understands that we're in an energy crisis. We're living through hours of load shedding uh, every day. But at the same time, we are facing increased risks from environmental degradation and also climate change, extreme weather events. And at the same time, we face a sluggish economy. And so this question about how we address those issues at the same time, how we address the energy crisis in a way that's just and equitable is really, I think, one of the central and fundamental questions that South Africa has to face in the immediate term. And our analysis, I think, very often gets stuck, and this is understandable, on ESCOM as a state-owned entity and its decline and its erosion. And what can sometimes happen, I think, in that space is that we start to ignore many of the private actors 
who see the crisis as an opportunity to make a lot of money and often doing so in ways that are not going to address the crises. And so our attempt in this report in particular is just to, I guess, reinvigorate that conversation and shine a light on all of the actors, both private and public, who are in this space and are, again, positioning themselves to make a lot of money, often in ways that are not helpful to addressing the very real crises that the country is facing. Michael, working in ways that are not going to address the crisis, are you suggesting that they just add a burden to the process or is there an element of alleged malfeasance here? I think that there's very real risk that we're going to see malfeasance. And this report is not one that identifies in many instances over examples of corruption, although we have seen those uh, very much in the energy space over the last two decades. The scandals of Petro SA are very good examples of this. But I think if you see the way in which the Department of Mineral Resources, for example, is pushing oil and gas exploration, and the companies that are really positioning themselves in that space, is that increasingly we see it done in a way that only makes sense in terms of the amount of profit and potential corruption that can come out of that. And this is a a global experience, is that one of the key sources of reluctance and rejection of renewable energy is because there is so much short-term money to be made in fossil fuels, oil and gas in particular. Much of that money comes from economic malfeasance and corruption. And so we've seen that over many decades, but I think what the report is also saying is that there's a moment here and the next 10, 15 years are going to be incredibly telling because if there is the kind of wide-scale investment in oil and gas that, for example, Guerra Mantashe is pushing, it's opening the country up to a great deal of risk when it comes to those types of corrupt scandals. Michael, the skeptic might turn around and say that uh, we need them because they are meeting a need. This is a a question that we have to grapple with, but I think what we have to do is we have to deal with the evidence which is kind of changing every day. If we look at the National Development Plan, the NDP, that was published uh, about a decade ago now, it calls for investment in oil and gas predominantly because at that time, 10, 15 years ago, the costs of renewable energy were very different. And so there was this notion that to meet the energy needs, and again, the crisis is used to justify this, that we have to do those things, we have to invest in oil and gas. And I think increasingly the independent evidence coming out is that that is rapidly changing and has changed. The cost calculus is very different. And so this is no longer, I think, a question of environmentalists Uh, raising concerns solely about the impact of oil and gas on the environment, which is devastating. But increasingly, there are just concerns that economically that this does not make sense, that we run huge risks of ending up with massive stranded assets in a way that doesn't truly address the energy needs, let alone the kind of socioeconomic needs. And so I think what the report also tries to do is bring together that evidence from multiple forums, concerns about environmental and social issues, but also the economic case. And I think what that shows is that that has increasingly changed. Who are some of the main players that you've identified? So what we've tried to do is, again, we've tried to identify the actors in, in the public and the private sphere. And in from government's perspective, there's two very clear kind of players here. The one is Gwede Mantashe, the Minister of Mineral Resources and Energy, and the DMRE. And, and the reason for that is that that's the central entity in government that is pushing for this type of large-scale new investment in fossil fuels. And I think the other is, is PetroSA, and in particular this proposal to build an, a new national petroleum company. 
In terms of the corporations, what we see is it's, it's really the usual suspects. If we look at our offshore oil and gas, for example, we're looking at large multinational companies like Total and Shell. From a domestic perspective, Hoskin Consolidated has a huge amount of investment in offshore oil and gas. And in terms of coal, it's really Xaro and Seriti, two coal companies that have really consolidated their interests in coal. It's slightly different when we look at the renewable energy space and we look at a lot of multinational firms like Enel Green Energy. And the last thing I'll say on this is that what's also, of course, interesting to note is that there are many companies that are trying to position themselves to benefit from both sides of this coin. And so companies like XRO and Seriti, the two largest suppliers of coal to ESCOM, have very large green uh, parts of their companies that are investing in renewables. And so, of course, many of those companies are uh, positioning themselves to benefit. Is there a suggestion that there is personal profit taking? Well, there's certainly evidence that there's been personal profit taking from parts of the state over the last 20 years. I mentioned earlier the example of Petro SA, and I think it's a very good one, is that we know due to the work of investigative journalists for 20 years now, as early as 2005, that Petro SA has been involved in providing kickbacks to contractors that supply oil, and that there's been a great deal of corruption in the deals that it's been involved with around the continent. And of course, in Petro SA's case, there's always the risk that that money is then funneled back to the ANC. And we've seen that as well, that there's been a party funding element to that. And of course, the other areas in which there's money in politics comes mm. in the in the form of donations to individuals. We know, for example, that the CEO of Seriti Resources, Mike Teke, was a large donor to Sir Ramaphosa's campaign. Now, they've dismissed that as being irrelevant as some kind of personal relationship. But there is certainly a great deal, I think, of money and influence that these companies and individual executives often bring into the public space. Michael Marchand from Open Secrets, thank you very much indeed. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. All right, let's move now from energy to health. And the Health Funders Association says there is no immediate threat to medical scheme tax credits recently put forward as a potential solution to funding the NHI, the National Health Insurance, while cautioning, though, that the broader economic consequences for all South Africans could be dire and should be carefully considered. Let's try and make some sense of this. Chairperson of the HFA is Craig Comrie, who joins us now on MoneyWeb at Midday. Craig, maybe a good starting point is just remind me what the purpose of these tax credits were. Well, effectively, in the uh, good afternoon, Jeremy, and um, thank you for having me on your show. Effectively, the tax credit uh, regulations came in, in effect, to encourage people to belong to medical schemes. And so medical scheme membership obviously removed the burden of servicing these members um, out of the state's facility. So um, it's a wonderful it's a wonderful equation. You get medical schemes to fund 270 billion odd rand of healthcare, and you incentivize that by providing rebates in the form of about uh, 29 or 30 billion rand, and that's and that's what the tax credits equate to. And they have been working to date. So if they are removed, what is the consequence? Yeah, the real consequence is that it makes um, healthcare less affordable. So. We estimate in the region of 400 to 700,000 people being affected. And so when you lose the tax credit, you obviously um, lose some of your your ability to to 
to afford health care and, and other living costs. So over and all, if you consider a, a family um, and possibly a family of four, the monthly loss for that family in terms of the removal of tax credits is in the region of 1,200 rand a month. So how close are we then to the legislation? And if the legislation is enacted, what happens then? Yeah, it's important to note that in the conversation about the, the NHI bill itself, um, it refers to the tax credits being paid to medical schemes. Obviously, that goes to individuals and members of medical schemes itself. And the important part is that any any reform in terms of the taxation laws in South Africa have to be promulgated through the Minister of Finance. And so the Minister of Finance would have to take that forward. The current recommend recommendation and proposal to remove tax credits has come um, very vocally from the Minister of Health. So we can see the dynamic in terms of the problems in finance in NHI at the moment and how to, f- how to get the money from, from, I guess, eventually the taxpayer to finance NHI. If they are not removed, uh, and uh, there is obviously a strong lobby uh, in this particular respect, um, what would this mean, do you think, for the NHI? It does revert back to, and we are talking about an NHI that is estimated to cost anywhere between 500 to 600 billion rand a year. Um, so currently there's about 230 billion rand of that sitting in the public sector already. And the eye or the, or, or the requirement is to try get hands on the 270 billion rand spent in the private sector. And the only way you can move that money around is if you increase and significantly increase taxes or remove things like this tax credit, which really is going to give you 30 billion. Um, and certainly you're going to have to find another 200 billion rand elsewhere. We, we know that the proposed costs of the NHI are, one, prohibitive, and two, it's a moving target at the moment. We just don't know how much it's going to cost. Do you see this particular move then as just a, a desperate government grab? There's no doubt that there's lots of pressures um, to find financing for a number of priorities. So it's interesting to see where this features in the government's own priorities. And that, I imagine, you'd find in terms of the Minister of Finance's comments um, nothing much came up in the medium-term budget speech, and so we, we're keenly watching to see how and where does the additional 200 billion rand actually come from. Placing this burden on on a already overstretched taxpayer um, will result in, in in fewer revenues actually being collected in the form of tax. Um, so it places a, a, another 200 billion rands worth of of tax revenue which means that either we pay 22% VAT or um, effectively income tax significantly increases. And uh, we know from the economists that uh, the, the theory of the Laffer curve, which, which we've seen happen, is as you increase the tax burden on, on taxpayers, you actually receive less in tax. If this is enacted, what's the immediate impact on health funders and uh, perhaps more importantly on the consumer then? Yeah, the biggest danger is the consumer in the end who loses um, his ability to afford medical scheme, which means this, the self-same 700,000 people will have to find services and pay for it either out of pocket or, or find services within the public sector. And, and that is problematic considering the, the extensive queues and, and lack of services available. I mean, from a health funders association perspective, there's an absolute need to reform the health sector, be it in the public and the private sector. We need reforms, but we 
we certainly don't need to see um, unnecessary burdens on the on the end consumer to then finance um, perhaps a future system that's that's not going to deliver what what is being promised or what um, the South African population is expecting. So what's your strategy then? How is the association planning to oppose these legislation changes? Have you developed strategies? We have a number of different scenarios. Obviously, the NHI bill at the moment is sitting uh, with the National Council of Provinces, and we think within the next week that probably will will be adopted. And and to see whether there are any changes relating to the bill itself will then depend on on how you would finance the anticipated uh, healthcare system into the future. So we absolutely have scenarios where we would stand up and and uh, fight for both the the current health consumer the medical scheme member in terms of of what that bill currently has in it. Craig Comrie, thank you very much indeed, Chairperson of the Health Funders Association. You're listening to MoneyWeb at Midday. The Gift of the Givers organization has confirmed that its head operative in Gaza, Ahmed Abbasi, was killed while returning from a morning prayer with his brother. In a statement, the Gift of the Givers claims that Abbasi was directly targeted by Israeli forces. Dr. Malik Abu Ragelia from the Gift of the Givers is with us now. And firstly, how then did he lose his life? Ahmed Abbasi was living in the northern side of Gaza City which is most of the bombs and the, the attacks was happening there since the first day of, of the war. So uh, his his region wasn't so safe, but he preferred to stay because, you know, uh, he said that let me let me try to, to help the people and, and the community and to carry on with my work until, you know, uh, until it became impossible, then I would think to leave. So then... Only before four day, before five days actually from now, he managed to move to another area, also in northern side of Gaza. Uh, but it is a little bit safer, as he said. But the problem, all the places is not safe, safe there, there. Then yesterday, Thursday, early morning, when he uh, he he went to to pray the early morning pray in, in the mosque next to his house with his brother. His brother also is a doctor, radiologist. So r- right after the pray, once they finish the pray, uh, and while they going out from the mosque with the other people, there was like big attack and 26 people were killed in this attack. Ahmed and his brother, uh, who is part of them. So uh, this is how he, he lost his uh, life. And uh, even when they 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 taking the because you know uh, the people who been you know around them they taking the body to the nearest hospital, and then the hospital personnel personnel uh, after they confirmed the death they they needed to bury Ahmed and others killed by the bombing without families uh, present. Why? Because the mortuary there is no there is no power to uh, operate the, the mortuary. So there is, as there is not telling when it mm. will, and also it's not telling when, when, when the family or uh, when the family can come to see them because also the roads is destructed mm. and uh, the, the, the atmosphere is not uh, safe for people to, to move around. So Dr. Dr. Regalia, maybe, could, you, could you tell me what he was telling you about the conditions that existed in Gaza before his death? 
the condition, especially in his area in the northern side, is, is catastrophic. Actually, now the 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 destruction is massive, and the movement is uh, is. Uh, uh, Fairly uh, like impossible. Anyone moves, especially if you are in group or if you uh, if you have uh, you know that's why even he couldn't t- distribute the 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 the, the items uh, uh, bulk items. He should always with his team carry like 30, 40, 50 maximum 50 parcels. Then they go distribute. Then go they come back to the warehouse to take whatever they can. So uh, beside that, uh, since many days now, maybe three weeks even, no power. Uh, the the water is uh, also no no water, and even the hospitals became not safe for for uh, people. Uh, of course, in uh, the people who displaced from their houses, they stays in the they stay in the hospitals and in the schools. Uh, in the schools, they tell me when we go. You, you see thousands of people sitting there. So that's why even we can't come by small or, mm. I mean, a uh, few number of uh, parcels. Could, could, you, could, you tell me will... what, could you tell me what impact his death is going to have on the work, the ongoing work of Gift of the Givers in Gaza? Of course, in, in the northern area now, we, 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 our work already is, is uh, stopped because we don't have enough items. And uh, also uh, the movement is very difficult. But in the southern area, we still have our team. And uh, uh, all of them, they promise that they will carry on with the same work and they will try to, you know, to uh, increase actually their work. But also, to be honest, we, we don't have enough items. Uh, we just barely now can carry on with the vegetable uh, distribution, water distribution. We're still mm. uh, able to do it. Uh, of course, of uh, some of the medicines and medical supplies, still uh, we we still have. But in general, I mean, it, it, our work won't stop there because the team they have good experience also, and they decided that we are not going to leave. You know, our uh, community with in this uh, tough situation, and you know, we sit back and we said, okay, now we 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 are. They try, and we we made some tactics. Now we advise them. Number one, you shouldn't put yourself in any. You know. Are uh, a dangerous situation. Keep yourself intact because you are the machine that keeps our services. And also, each one of them now sit in one place, and we tell them that you are not allowed to leave this place to to other area. I mean, only work to to benefit or to serve the people around you, mm-hmm. the community around you. So some of them now they're sitting in the hospital. He helped the people in this hospital. Some of them, one 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 also guy with his family. He 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 already left his house and he sit in one of the schools so he served that school uh, that's what we try now to uh, you know to do to minimize the the the, the, right. the risk of our teams dr regala can you give me uh, a sense of how gift of the givers is viewing the actions of the israeli forces in gaza particularly in the context of ahmed abbasi's death uh, actually uh, you know gift of the givers has been there since many years in gaza in palestine okay and in each war, we always, you know, we we know that the war always and attacks happened against the, you know, the military uh, places, maybe the leaders. So we uh, we know that the hospitals in the, in the previous wars, the hospitals and the, the civilian places always is a safe when you and uh, to go to meet the displaced people and to serve them. It is a safe place. But in this war, it is totally different. No place left safe, unfortunately. Civilian buildings, normal buildings, they 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 attack. You know, sometimes 
mosques, uh, church, uh, bakeries. I mean, one time they, they attack uh, the bakeries in the morning while people were queuing to, to take to take uh, bread. I mean, uh, even hospitals, as you know. So for us now, we don't know what is the plan, what what they are going to do, and uh, definitely the, the 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 destruction and the impact mm. of of the community is is very. But we try now as much as we can, you know, to, to, to help them to recover. And we started now, you know, some uh, kind of psychosocial programs for the children to, to, you know, just to let them forget what, what they are sitting right. in. But it is not easy. So the situation, we don't know. Uh, the only way now to, to, to go back to, to the proper work is to stop the war, actually. We try, of course, from Egypt to send uh, some uh, relief trucks, but we don't know. Maybe uh, by the next week it will be inside. But also it won't be enough for the the, 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 the high number of the displaced right. people and the needy people. Dr. Malik uh, Regalia, thank you very much uh, for joining me today. MoneyWeb at Midday, for all your up-to-date stories. Well, as we finish the program, let me ask you this question. How are your fingernails today? And when all is said and done, Australia were simply the better team on the Eden Gardens field in the Cricket World Cup semi-final. But let's take nothing away from the Proteas. And the question now is, where does this leave the South African team in terms of its future trajectory? In India, former CSA official and broadcaster Altaf Kazi is with us. And Altaf, first of all, what are your thoughts on the team's overall success in the tournament? Look, I think the team exceeded expectations. I think when people were choosing who the top four were when the World Cup started, I don't think many people had South Africa in there, but the team believed. Rob Walters took a side, talented side, young side, many of them playing in the World Cup for the first time. And I think they have exceeded expectations. But being a nation like South Africa, we do want to go all to the finals. We know that the Springboks did that as well, winning the World Cup. So we had high expectations going to the semi-final. Um, unfortunately, it didn't go our way, but I was on the ground. It was intense. It was passion-filled. The team really fought, or uh, you know, but the, the batters would admit they let us down. And uh, But at the end of the day, I think uh, the South African team can be proud of the achievements at the World Cup. So we start to look forward now, Altaf. In what ways, then, do you think that South African cricket can build on the successes and the learnings from this tournament to improve in future competitions? And, you know, 2027... Now, I'm not going to say it's around the corner, but we've got to start looking there. Look, 2027 is uh, South Africa hosting the World Cup. So you really want to, as a host team and a home team, qualify for the semifinals and the finals and win it in front of your, your own people. So lots of positives to take forward from, from the World Cup. I think there's enough young players that have put their hands up. I think this experience playing in India in front of fantastic crowds against the world's best will, would have given guys like Gerald Kutsia, Marco Janssen, a taste of what to expect. I mean, I think we all know that there probably are some players who won't be there in 2023. But I do think there's enough time and I do think there's a solid base to work from when we plan for 2027 Cricket World Cup uh, in South Africa. Altaf, what would cricket be without uh, a little controversy? So before the game, Temba Bavuma saying he wasn't 100% fit after the game. Rob Walter said he wasn't interested in who wins the final. Obviously, there's been a lot of social media play around this. Is this going to be an issue, do you think? 
Look, I think uh, even though Temba wasn't 100% fit, as so he says, I, I wasn't privy to what I said at the task, but the fact is, you know, he's an integral player, he's got a great mind, um, and, and he is your captain. And if he was able to get onto the field and play, you know, so be it. At the end of the day, you know, there were other opportunities that also came our way that we didn't take, but I think you know, we gave it our best shot, and um, I just feel that the team can be proud of themselves uh, you know it was 10 games three losses that's essentially what it came down to to you know we only lost two in the in the group stages and then yesterday so um, yeah I think it's something you know we got to live with but uh, at the end of the day I think you know the team that went on the field knew what was required and I think just fell short by not putting up enough runs and yet and there not making the most of the opportunities that came their way in the field we have lost that chokers tag haven't we yeah I think that's gone past I mean the players who are playing today were some of them were probably not even born when the tag was um, you know, brought about. So I think it's not about jokers. We weren't in a winning position. I think we were poorly, but we showed heart, the intensity. Again, you know, I had front row seats. I was right there on the field. I, you could just feel what the boys wanting to do. And um, yeah, I think that's a word that must be eradicated. And as fans, we all need to be responsible and move away from it. I think we need to show support to the Proteas. And by showing support, we give our best to them and do away with that horrible word. Altaf, stop making us all jealous and saying that you had front row seats. We get it. We understand. You were there. You were at the ground. Now let's talk about what aspects of South Africa's game need improvement based on that performance in the semi-final. Okay, again, I think we won the toss and chose the bat. So um, if we're going to have an approach, we need to, we, you know, we need to stick to that. So we probably came playing there. We didn't expect to be four down in the power play. So I think that was something that needs to be looked at. Again, the Australians, um, they're a team that they, they didn't have the greatest of starts to the World Cup, but they just got stronger and stronger as the tournament went along. So with Mitchell Stark not being as convincing, he was you know, at his very best yesterday. And I think that's where we came unstuck against a really potent uh, new ball attack in conditions that favoured them. But again, we chose to bat. So by choosing to bat in bowler-friendly conditions, we would have expected to play to a certain game plan, which we did not. Do you think this result or this performance at the Cricket World Cup, and this is a final question for you, bodes well for the commercial success of Cricket South Africa going forward uh, in respect of looking for new sponsors? It certainly created a hype again about the South African team and a positive hype. I mean, there was a time in 2016, 2017, where you had 18 commercial partners. Cricket South Africa was the leading sports federation at the Sports Industry Awards. And we need to get back to that. I think there's an opportunity. I think there's players that represent the country really well, that are great ambassadors. And I think, um, you know, this World Cup would have opened up the eyes of commercial partners. But um, Cricket South Africa has to prove itself again because I think we all know what's happened in the past. But again, with strong leadership, which I believe there is, and getting to the right commercial partner and showing value, we're able to then bring back those glory days where you had partners, you know, clamoring for positions on the jersey for certain associations with the national team and Cricket South Africa across all spheres, be it cricket development, be it women's cricket, be it the men's national team, be it domestic cricket. So um, I hope there is a lessons here and, and opportunities here that can be taken back to uh, corporate South Africa to get behind the Proteas, which is, you know, a really great sports team. Altaf Kazi, thank you very much indeed. And as we finish the program, other stories on our radar. New statistics show that murders in South Africa have dropped very slightly in Q2 of this year, but still remain close to around 7,000. And the Israeli Defense Force says it's found a Hamas tunnel shaft at the Al-Shifa hospital in Gaza. MoneyWeb at midday. We are live at noon weekdays. Then we're up as a podcast. Have a good weekend. Thank you for listening and goodbye. 
Listen to the daily live stream of MoneyWeb at midday or download episodes on moneyweb.co.za, the MoneyWeb app, Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Or follow MoneyWeb News on social media for more updates. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.